This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If you've been paying attention to the news, especially out of Ottawa, you have heard that in the last week or so, there has been, there have been lots of debates, lots of shouting, lots of arguing, lots of asking for clarification about the federal carbon tax. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer and his party, you'll recall, staged a long debate slash protest the other day demanding the Liberals tell Canadians what this tax will mean to them, to the average person. What is this tax? What's the impact going to be on their wallets? That's what we want to know. What is this going to do to you, to me, to everyone else when this thing finally comes into, into play? Finance Minister Bill Morneau said, well, you'd have to ask the provinces because they're really the ones who are going to implement it. We're sort of overseeing this whole thing. The provinces aren't all on board. You know that Ontario, Doug Ford, for example, is not on board with this. So they're not going to give an answer. At least they're not at this point going to give an answer. So we end up being back where we started. What is the number? What is the impact going to be on you and I and our wallets and our bank accounts when the federal imposed carbon tax comes into play? Well, Thank goodness for our professors. A University of Calgary economics professor has gotten down to this, sharpened her pencil and figured some of this out and may now be able to help us understand what the impact is going to be. Dr. Jennifer Winter is a University of Calgary economics professor whose research is focused on the efforts of government regulation and policy on the development of natural resources and energy and the consequences of energy development. She joins me now, Dr. Winter. Thanks for doing this today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Before I ask you the number to start off with, let me just say the Financial Post wrote about this today and the headline was, we're finally told what Trudeau's carbon tax will cost us. Are you sitting down? That's a daunting way to start a story about what this is going to be. That doesn't sound good. (laughs) Well, um, no one likes new taxes. No one (laughs) likes taxes at all. So, of of course, um, you know, anytime or... Yeah, anytime you you put a number to these things, there's going to be sticker shocks. And the many times headlines are trying to sensationalize uh, issues in order to get people to read and, you know, sell newspapers. This is part of the, the news business. Is okay, so let us get to the number then. And now I know it's going to be different across the country because of a very variety of combinations and impacts and things like that. But generally, what are what is an average Canadian family, when this thing comes into play, what extra cost are we going to be facing, roughly? So this is actually a really hard question to answer, and uh, of, of, of course, right? Um, so one of the things is that because all of the provinces are implementing the carbon tax differently, it means that the number is going to, to vary. Like if, if we picked up BC's tax and put it in Ontario, the average costs would be different uh, because of how households use uh, energy. So, for example, my calculation for Ontario at $50 a ton, if it was just a broad BC-style carbon tax, it would be $700 a year. For a family, um, for a, for the average household. Okay. Uh, so yeah, um, and and so you know, numbers they can be generally interpreted, but it's important to, to to note that what I'm doing isn't calculating the costs of the federal policy or any of the specific provincial policies. I'm giving, say, the maximum amount it could potentially cost 
under certain assumptions, like no behavioral change, no energy efficiency improvements, no other policies to mitigate the cost to households. And this and so, this, would, this would be beginning in 2022, correct, when this is supposed to be in place? Um, 2022? $50, $50 a ton is 2022. Yep. It's actually supposed, to, for, for the, the, the federal policy, it's supposed to be in place this year at $10 a ton, rising by $10 per year until 2022 when it caps out at $50 a ton. So how exactly do uh, the government, uh, Bill Morneau, as I say, was sort of passing this to the provinces. The provinces were not really giving an answer. Uh, it's, as you say, it's not a simple thing to figure out. How does one sit down? What are the, what are the, the how can you figure out this kind of thing without the government giving you some sort of answer? What, what are the, the criteria or the things that we can look at? Right. So what I looked at is average household use um, for of uh, natural gas for home heating or the, the dominant source of home heating in, in the province, gasoline consumption, and then electricity use. So that's how I constructed my number. And then I also used some, um, a, a modeling software to come up with indirect costs. So how carbon tax costs on firms will impact households through price increases and things like that. So, you know, that's the, the basic way to go about it, just looking at energy use. And the federal government has tables that um, translate how much energy you use and what's the uh, what's the per uh, gigajoule cost um, on the um, based on the emissions intensity but you know it is it is tricky and you also have to know where to look for the right data to try and find what the average household uses for energy um, and so it is rather challenging it's like getting our it's like getting our cell phone bill and trying to figure out the bill because <laughs> no one <laughs> unless you know what you're exactly what you're looking for no one has any idea what they're actually looking at. Exactly, exactly. Can, I mean, can you imagine trying to look through your hydro bill and then collect all your gas receipts from the past year and things like that to try and come up with uh, with an estimate? I mean, that of course that's tough and it's a lot of work. Um and it and you know, in many provinces, there are these other policies in place that also impact the costs to households. For example, in Alberta, there's um, programs to promote energy efficiency. So everyone got um, really cheap, um, high efficiency light bulbs. And so that impacts energy use. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Dr. Winter, this is, this is you, you, you touched on this also, because this is not just directly on the use in your household, but there are going to be other places where we're kind of getting nicked with this, because companies are going to be hit with this as well, correct? So now they have to pay more of carbon tax to transport their goods, food, or whatever else to local stores, they're going to add that. They're not going to eat that cost. They're going to add that to the cost of whatever they're selling. So we're going to get hit with that as well, correct? Yes, that's true. Um, those, I mean, the extent to which they can pass those costs on depends on a lot of things, um, like many, like like how competitive uh, an industry is. But yeah, generally speaking, there are going to be these indirect costs passed on to households. 
Right. So we get hit. That's the second hit, kind of, if you want to say, from the from this carbon tax potentially. And the third, I guess, is if the prices of those things do go up. Let's say we're talking about, I don't know, bananas or whatever. And the price of bananas now goes up because the cost of delivering them with gas and everything has gone up. Uh, we are now going to be paying GST on the increased price. So our GST also goes up. So we're kind of getting nailed a third time on this thing. There, there are trickle downs in this that tr- go all the way through the economy. Yeah, yeah, that is correct. Um, though, I mean, that's the, you know, the whole point of the, the carbon tax, or in Ontario, the, the cap and trade system, is to put a price on emissions intensive goods to nudge behavior so that we're moving towards less emissions um, in intensive goods. It's, it's, you know, part of the, the, the rationale. And, you know, it, it is going to have an impact on households. But, mm. you know, in comparison to other taxes, it, it, it's really, it, it's not that high, um, I guess, is sort of the slightly reassuring, <laughs> but not really. <laughs> well, they um, yeah, the government has said to us that this is going to be relatively painless. So I guess the definition of painless, it depends on what your threshold for pain is, I guess, is the way to define that then. Yeah, yeah, it does. And how sensitive you are to some of these uh, these price increases. Like if you have a big truck or an SUV, that's going to impact you a lot more than if you're dr- driving a hybrid, for example. Yeah, and I and I think it's probably fair to say then that there could be those who would argue if you live out in the rural area where you don't have access to public transit or if you're a farmer and needs to use heavy equipment or stuff like that, this is going to hit you harder. Yeah, absolutely. Um, though to be fair to many of the, the provinces, they are exempting agricultural fuels from the carbon tax or the cap-and-trade system. So there is some some cost mitigation there. And, um, you know, what the governments choose to do with the revenue or um, what other policies are introduced, those can help mitigate some of the cost impacts. For example, BC, when they originally introduced the, the carbon tax, they lowered personal income taxes. Alberta has a rebate for lower-income households, et cetera, et cetera. So there are options to try and mitigate some of these cost impacts. You are out in Calgary. You're very familiar, way more familiar than we are with uh, what's been going on in Alberta's economy and the uh, struggles out there at times. Will this not have a significant further impact since there is so much reliance on the oil industry and the gas industry? Will this not have a further detrimental effect on Alberta's economy? So it, it is going to impact Alberta's economy because any new tax creates cost increases. But part of the Alberta government's policy package is a special pricing system for large emitters, which includes the oil sands. And so, again, it's the policy choices are mitigating some of these cost increases. Um, though I think the bigger concern in Alberta has really been um, regulatory uncertainty about whether or not pipelines are mm. going to get built. Sure, of course. And so that creates a lot more of an impact on the investment environment than a, a carbon tax. But I'm even thinking beyond the emissions that the companies might have to make the oil, it's the fact that if people across the country are trying to have their behaviors changed to not use oil and gas, and there's less demand then, that will have an impact on Alberta. 
Yes, um, over the long term, for sure. Um, the short term, not so much. But yeah, this is a, a, a definite concern for the, the oil and gas companies. And, you know, they are doing their best to reduce their own emissions so that, you know, they're not paying the carbon tax and um, and and it makes the you know the product they're selling look better from an environmental sense. And we just have a few seconds left here. And the reason I keep asking about Alberta, because people around here are going, why are we caring about Alberta so much? We're in Ontario. I get that. But on this show, several times, many times, we've had Marvin Ryder on here, economist from McMaster, who has talked about how the oil prices so significantly affect our loony. And the reason I bring it is if our oil prices are dropping, if the cost of a barrel of oil is going down and down and down, that will have an effect right across the country on our dollar. Yeah, it does. And I think one thing that people don't necessarily know is really how integrated the Canadian economy is in that the oil sands buys buses and trucks from manufacturers in Ontario and Quebec. And so a drop in production in the oil sands and a drop in economic activity in Alberta can have significant trickle effects throughout the economy, independent of any uh, changes of, uh, of the loony. Dr. Jennifer Winter from the University of Calgary. Uh, Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. We are in the middle of the World Cup. We are almost at the end of the group stage. It's been terrific, actually. And there's been a number of things that have been big surprises. The biggest happened today, I think. Without question, the biggest surprise came today. Uh, John McGrain is a Hamilton Sports Hall of Famer, a Canadian Soccer Hall of Famer, a former Olympian, a soccer builder. Uh, He has a resume that is as long as a soccer pitch or field, if you're Canadian, you prefer. Uh, He joins us now. John, thanks for doing this today. Always my pleasure, Scott. When was the last time, maybe Italy not making it into the World Cup would qualify, but when was the last time in a World Cup we have had a surprise like we did today when Germany, the defending champions and overwhelming favorites, got bounced by South Korea and don't even make it into the knockout phase. When was the last time we had a surprise that big? Oh, this is new territory, Scott. I've uh, I've only been around for uh, 60-odd years, hmm. but uh, I can assure you I've never seen anything quite like this, not just with Germany, uh, but Argentina getting in by the skin of their teeth. Uh, there's so many... You know, so many uh, countries out there who are just breathing a sigh of relief to get past the group stages. But keep this in mind, the 2014 World Cup was between West Ger- uh, Germany and, uh, and Holland. Neither one of them, uh, for different reasons, are going into the 16. Yeah, and, when, and as I say, when you knock out Italy as well, who didn't even make it into the World Cup along with the Netherlands... Uh, there are some big, big players on the world stage who are suddenly on the outside looking in. And, and I mean, Germany was, was at least, what, a co-favorite to win this thing? They were right up there. You know what? Uh, for, those who, for those who have followed the game quite, close, quite, quite closely, uh, the way that Germany has, has been playing over the last year has been a complete disappointment. Uh, and then the team selection for this particular World Cup was also a bit of a shocker. And I think that uh, Joachim Lowe, th- this falls on his shoulders, no doubt about it. This was a team without chemistry. Before we get further into this, um, your theory 
on why it is that when the World Cup comes on, even a whole lot of people who otherwise don't have a whole lot of interest in soccer suddenly stop everything and pay close, close attention. Why is that? Well, it's easy as far as uh, Canada and the United States is concerned because we're, we're basically the melting pot uh, of the world. We're new countries, respectively, in the last couple hundred years. So we, we're a country of immigrants, and uh, whether it's... Uh, parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. When it comes to the World Cup, soccer is something that brings the world together in peace, but also gives us an opportunity to get back to our roots. And uh, we end up, uh, if our country of Canada is not involved, we always tend to go back to where our ancestors came from. And, uh, and it's a lot of fun, especially if you enjoy the game. So I think that's the main reason. When you say we come together in peace, uh, we just haven't had a game recently between Croatia and Serbia. <laughs> or else we may have and we to clarify. And we don't have Palestine, the Palestinians playing the Israelis. That's right. Us. And this time we don't have England playing Germany, and that's always fun too. So, hey, speaking of England, I mean, Germany uh, crashes and burns, finishes last in their group, which is the bigger. I mean, not making it is one thing. Finishing last in their group is shocking. But England which, at least in my lifetime, seemingly, traditionally shows up at these things with great fanfare and there's all kinds of excitement and then finds new and unique ways to wet the bed. England looks great. Well, keep in mind, the, the two games have played, they've played against pub teams. Uh, Fair enough, but they're scoring and they don't often do that at the World Cup. They're finding ways. Well, they're, they're finding ways. I mean, they scrape by the, te- the you know the skin of their teeth against Tunisia, you know, scoring in the last uh, last seconds of the game to win two one, and then they get a game, uh, the second game where uh, they win like five. I think it was five to one or five to two. Uh, uh, I don't think they've come up against any competition. I don't even think the game against Belgium is going to really, uh, you know, bring out the. Uh, you know, the heart and, and spirit of what England can be because Belgium's going to rest a number of their players. Uh, there's still a big question for me. Uh, if, uh, am I surprised that they're going into the final 16? No. Would I have been surprised if they didn't go into the 16? No. Yeah, and, and this is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, but for the average, well, for the casual fan, let me use that phrase instead, for the casual fan who doesn't follow the Premier League closely all the time, this seems to be an England team that doesn't have the huge, huge, huge stars that we've seen on England teams in the past. There's nobody like a Beckham. There's none of those guys. It's, I mean, these are, these are Premier League stars. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But on the world stage, the average fan doesn't necessarily know these guys, and yet they seem to be figuring out a way at least better than their recent predecessors. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, they're, you know, to score five goals in any competition is definitely an achievement. Uh, it helps that you've got one of the best strikers in the world in Harry Kane. Uh, again, they're they're a no-name team. A lot of that is, I mean, if you look at Italy and why they're not there, is because for many, many decades, Italy has been the place where foreigners came to earn big money. And what it did was it increased the caliber of play in Italy at the expense of the Italian players. And I think what's happening in England right now is that you're getting the best players from around the world playing in the Premier Division at the expense of the development of the English players. And the fact that they've got these guys playing together as a team and there's no stars, I think that's a direct result of the fact that the, that the really, really good players are not being, being developed in England. And 
I think at some point they're going to have to wake up and, and start developing some of their better midfielders. I mean, they've got an average midfield. Uh, their defense is, is, is average. Uh, they've got some good strikers there. But individually, not very good as a team, playing very well. So tomorrow England plays Belgium. As you say, Belgium's going to sit a bunch of their regulars. And here's where things get really interesting. And even if you never have watched a soccer game, you may be inclined to watch tomorrow, if only to see the outcome. Because if England and Belgium tie tomorrow, if they finish tied, they will be dead even in literally every single tiebreaker. Goals scored, goals against, goals for, goal differential, all that kind of thing. So what their tiebreaker will be tomorrow to determine who wins their group will be the fair play rule. Who has the fewest yellow and red cards? Is this the stupidest tiebreaker in all of sports other than maybe flipping a coin? It's almost as stupid as the days I was playing in NESL and we, and we settled games by having the shootout from 35 yards out, one-on-one with goalie. Uh, FIFA always, com- always comes up with clinkers. That's one of them. Uh, I'd rather lose by a, a flip of the coin. You've got at least a 50-50 chance. I mean, to... To penalize teams for being aggressive and being hungry, uh, and you're, you're really depending on the quality of the referee that you've got, will give you a yellow card for anything. So I don't think it's a fair way to uh, to settle this. But I've got a funny feeling this game's not going to be settled on a draw. Well, here's the funny part about it. If it's close, if it's a draw, if it's coming down to the end and it's close to a tie, there are a lot of people that I've been reading that say, based on the way things have all broken down, the team that finishes second in this group may actually have an easier path through. Therefore, would we ever expect that in the last 10 or 15 minutes of this game, if it's tied, that we suddenly see guys hacking and whacking at their opponents to pick up a yellow card or two just to make sure they get that second place? Oh, you've been listening to too many conspiracy theorists, <laughs> I swear to God. You're spending too much time in that box, and it's you know, I swear to God. Uh, anything's possible. Anything's possible. Uh, highly doubtful. These guys uh, are playing in the World Cup at that level. Uh, they're making a whole lot of money. So when they play in the World Cup, uh, they're not playing for dollars and cents. They're playing for pride, pride of the country. Reputation, and, and too. I think, and I think they go... Yeah, and I think they're going out there to win sure. uh, win for the country. So I don't I don't see that happening. Uh, did it happen in the, over the last 20 years? Yeah, it did. And the old Austria-Germany situation many moons ago was a, a prime example. But uh, no, I don't see that happening at all. About the draws, though, I'll tell you one thing that I, I love, and that is, unless I miss some, in the group stage in this World Cup, there has been only one... 0-0 or nil-nil if you prefer, only one nil-nil tie. There have been goals scored in this World Cup and sometimes a lot of goals. And again, John, I think the absolute purists may watch a 0-0 tie and say, ah, that was a terrific game. But I think when you've got all these eyeballs that don't always follow the game, at least having a few goals here and there is a really good thing for the world for the game of soccer. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, I, mean, I, I think the World Cup started out with a bang. You know, Russia 5 nothing. Uh, I, I think uh, what Senegal is bringing to the table right now is a breath of fresh air. I was so unhappy to see that Nigeria went out because I loved the way they played. This seems like a more uh, entertaining, attacking, uh, you know, take-no-risk type of uh, World Cup. Why? Why? You, why? Well, I, I, I think the quality of the players is, is getting better. 
I think that the parity between teams so that you're not going in to try and keep the game close anymore. I mean, that's why you saw, you know, South Korea uh, winning 2 nothing. It's, it's why you saw Iran pull off an upset. I mean, there's so many games in this tournament where teams are going out there saying, I'm not afraid of these guys. And I think that is why Spain, Portugal, I mean, these, these, these are, you know, Spain, the two-time European, Cup, uh, European champions and, and World Cup winners. I mean, they went in by the skin of their teeth against what you'd call minnows. So I think the world is catching up to the big guys and, uh, and, the, and the quality of players in these smaller countries is shocking people. So that bodes well for the, uh, the 2026 World Cup here in Canada. Is that going to change, though, over the next couple of weeks? Because it's one thing to, if you're a team that you have nothing to lose because nobody expects you to win, you can just go out there and let it all go. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, well, nobody thought you were going to win anyway. But if you get into the knockout round now, suddenly there are expectations and you're realizing the opportunity in front of you. Should we be expecting things to begin really tightening up, though? Absolutely. I mean, when you get out of the group stages, in the group stages you get three chances to do well. Uh, so when you're in the group stage and you don't think you're getting out of there, you've got three opportunities to, to try and show the world that you're good enough. And in certain cases, these teams have shown not only the good enough, but they're pulling off upsets. But when you get into the 16 or the 8 or the, the semifinals, uh, these, these are knockout competitions. And the teams who are in there because of the fact that the, they weren't expected to be there I mean, things are going to tighten up for them. Uh, it's not going to be a lazy, fair, wide-open scenario. It'll be a very tactical scenario. Uh, plus the fact you're playing your fourth game in probably 10 days. You're, you're tired. You've got some players. Your good players are, are a little bit injured. And it'll all come down to the, the depth of talent that you have on your teams. And that's why when you get to the 16 or the quarterfinals, you tend to see the, the recognized teams doing very well simply because of depth. John, you have been on the field. You have played, I don't know how many soccer games you've played, high-level, professional, or international games. I, I don't know what the number is. You probably don't know what the number is. What percentage of the guys who go down to a tackle and stay down show, looking like they are hurt, what percentage of the guys who go down actually are hurt, and what percent of them are just embellishing a little bit? Uh, that's an easy question. Zero percent. Zero percent which way? Zero percent of these guys are injured. Uh, 100% that they're embellishing, and 100% is an embarrassment to the game. Until referees start pulling out cards and giving these guys yellow cards for diving in boxes, uh, feigning injuries, I mean, I am so sick and tired. Uh, you call me a traditionalist or what, but even people who are not soccer fans look at this. They're used to seeing hockey games where guys are getting their heads split open and coming back five minutes later with 25 stitches. When I see that happening uh, on the field, it really upsets me, and we have, to, we have to do something to stop it. I think it's very cultural. You see people in the southern parts of Europe and in South and Central and South America who are prone to doing that. It's a part of, uh, I call it cheating, but they see it as part of doing whatever it takes to, to get an outcome. And people in the northern part, like the Germans and the Dutch and the Brits and uh, and many others like that, even in North America, we don't do that uh, because it's our culture to just get on with it. And, and even if it is 
a bang-up scenario. You put a band-aid on it and get back on the field. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, if you want the image to, to change as far as what people think about professional soccer at the World Cup level, that is one of the areas that they have to clean up. Earlier this week, Don Robertson was in here. We were chatting about this, and we pointed out that they now are using the instant replay for a lot of different things. And what I don't understand is this would be a perfect opportunity if you see someone who goes down without being touched. It's a complete dive where there's not even a question that the person was impeded. This would be a perfect opportunity to call down to the referee and say, red card, he's gone, and you would get rid of diving in about five minutes. I don't know why they won't do it. Well, the problem is if you use VAR for all those different things, you'll end up having a baseball game, which will be three and a half hours long. Uh, I think VAR right now has been overused. It should be used simply for penalty kicks or uh, questionable goals. I know they're using it for offside and this and, and for other things. The referee and the linesman, they know when a guy's taking a dive. Make no mistake about that. So uh, what happens is a guy takes a dive and everybody runs over, over to the referee, surrounds him and says, that was a free kick, even though the referee knows he wasn't touched. So I think if we've got referees who can, who can uh, grow a pair, so to speak, uh, and stand up to these types of cheating, uh, uh, cheating things that goes on in the game, uh, we'll always have this. But I don't think VAR is the answer. I think it's just referees doing their job. What do you think, I mean, generally, and you sort of alluded to it, this has been the World Cup of VAR, and that's the, the replay system they're using. In general, what do you think about the idea? I hate replay in any sense, but I'm open to listening to someone else. What do you think about the idea generally? I think there, you know, like anything else, this is an experiment. And uh, I, I think that on, on the whole, what I have seen as far as VAR is concerned, the result has been close to 100%. Uh, the problem is is that you're continually stopping the game when players are starting to question whether something should be a penalty kick or a guy was offside. Uh, it slows the game down too much. So I think we need to limit the VAR so that we can have a, a flow. As a player, you're on the field and you've got a flow going and you're, you, the team you're playing against has got their backs to the wall. Many things can happen by utilizing VAR for the other team to slow the pace down, to take the momentum away from the team that's pushing. So I think it could be used to the detriment of the game. Uh, I think it has to be limited, uh, but I think it has a place in the game, but uh, not used to the extent it's being used right now. We know how Murphy's Law works. What do you think the odds are that in the championship game, that somehow the deciding moment of the championship game in this World Cup is going to somehow involve a call by VAR? I would say it's 90%. That's Murphy's Law. You're probably right. But at the same time, when you have close to 100% record on, on using the VAR and whether it's right or wrong, when you have that type of percentage, what's meant to be is meant to be. If it was a penalty, it's a penalty. Whether the referee sees it or whether a uh, a replay person up there in VAR sees it, it's a penalty. In the old days, if you didn't see it, it was play on. Uh, It's almost like when you're you're a baseball umpire and people are, depending on the umpire, calling balls and strikes based on what he sees, not necessarily what it is, what Mm. he sees. 
So if you were to change that type of instant replay to replace the umpire with something that is definitive, that it is definitely a ball or it is definitely a strike, there's no argument. The problem that I still have with this is I, I'm, I guess I'm okay with it to test to see if a ball has crossed the goal line uh, because that is an absolute. That's a black or a white. There's no gray area. The ball's either in or it isn't in. But what we're doing is we're sending a replay. It's still a human judgment call just in slow motion now. And so we've seen some on VAR that are calls that I thought, oh, that's surely going to be overturned, and it wasn't. The one with Cristiano Ronaldo, I thought he was going to get thrown out of the game for elbowing the guy in the head. Another player probably does get kicked out for that, but he doesn't. We've All we've done is taken judgment calls from one venue and put it into another venue. Oh, I think you're being harsh, Scott. I think you're being harsh. I, I, I think that when it comes to Cristiano Ronaldo, there are certain players who get the benefit of the doubt. Yep. And that's going to happen, whether it's uh, great players in hockey in the Stanley Cup Finals. The great players will always get the benefit of the doubt in certain situations. Uh, but for the most part, if you can take something where you're 90, above 90% correct on all the, in all the uh, judgments that are made, I mean, I think there's a lot of people who will, uh, who will support that. Those who are traditionalists don't like this because it changes the game where there's no ambiguity at all. It's either black or white. Uh, and when that's the case, when the game is finished, there's nothing to chat about on what and, and discuss and argue about a particular call. Well, I thought it was a penalty. Well, I didn't see it that way. No, it's black and white. It's a penalty or it's not. And the, and the slow motion is there to say that's the case. That takes the fun out of the arguing after the game. And I love, and the, I love the arguing after the game. So do I. Just before I let you go, uh, Germany is out. I- Italy was never in. Netherlands were never in. Some of the big fish in the sea. Who is the favorite now to win this thing? I've, I've said from day one, in fact, when I spoke to you before the World Cup started, I always said that my, my dark horse was Belgium. Uh, but uh, Brazil is... Uh, it's like Yamamoto said after Pearl Harbor, all we've done is awoken... Uh, a sleeping giant and filled him with a great resolve. I think that uh, Brazil uh, is the sleeping giant. Uh, they are fight- they were fighting for their lives to get into the 16. I think it scared the crap out of them. I think they've woken up, and I still think that they're the favorites to win it all. John McGrain, Hamilton's Mr. Soccer. I uh, appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for this. Oh, it's my pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Earlier today, through the day, you have heard, if you've been listening here on 900 CHML, and I certainly hope you have, I hope that's part of your day, you have been hearing conversation and discussion about a proposal, a, a, a rule change that is apparently coming, or at least is being discussed to come, at Hamilton City Hall. Lots going on at Hamilton City Hall today. But this is one of the things. That there is apparently now a change in procedure that is about to be applied, which would make it possible for you, if you attend a meeting at Hamilton City Hall, to be booted out of a meeting if you are disrespectful, speak disrespectfully to council or its decisions or council's decisions. 
And this, of course, has spurred endless conversation and endless debate because it is written, and at least as we know of it right now, so broadly that it is nonsensical. It is to simply say that you are unable to speak disrespectfully of council's decisions without being kicked out of a meeting. I don't think there is a single person, even councillors, who wouldn't look at that and say, all right, someone's going to have to explain this way, way, way better what they mean. Because politics is, frankly, a lot of the time requires politicians, if you're going to get into that game, to have thick skin. If you don't have thick enough skin to hear some criticism from your people who voted you in, you are in the wrong racket. You are in the wrong business if you can't take a little bit of criticism and maybe even, I dare say, a little disrespect. Now, last night, if you were here, uh, I said, and we were chatting about something else that council did. It was about filling or not filling Ward 7 Councillor Donna Skelly's vacant seat. I gave all kinds of credit to council because I thought that the decision they made, which kind of flew in the face of the rules and regulations, I thought it was smart. I thought it was right. And I gave them credit. And last night I said, when council does something well, they deserve credit, they deserve praise, and we're going to give it here. But I also said, when council does something stupid, they get called on it here as well. Well, this is the other side of that hand because as the as council gives apparently in the wisdom department, council takes away. This is a whatever this rule is, however it's going to be worded, is stupid. Plain and simple, it is stupid. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot put rules in place that say that you cannot be disrespectful to council without ex- putting extreme definitions on what disrespectful is. Because here's the thing, and and I'm happy to hear from you on this one, what your thoughts are on this. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Here's the thing. Public buildings already have rules about bullying, have rules about bad behavior in this city. If you are a parent at a hockey rink and you misbehave or you abuse an official verbally or you abuse a kid, yell stuff at a kid, already the rules are in place that you can be removed from that. So the rules exist already that if you stand up in a council chamber and start blowing an air horn or start wildly swearing at people at the top of your voice, or you rip off your clothes and start running through the council chamber gallery naked, there's already things that are in place that you could be removed from that particular meeting. This is the, We're not talking about a wild west that is simply being socialized or civilized a little bit here. We're talking about something entirely different, and that is that now, apparently, you are going to have to be not disrespectful to city councillors. Well, look, I'm all in favor and fully agree that we do need civility in society. We're not always very civil people. We do need civility in our society. We need more civility in our society. We should be more polite to each other, choose our words a little more carefully for each other. I'm, I'm all for that. Who isn't for that? Who wouldn't actually go with that? Let me tell you something. If we're going to do that, if we are going to demand that, who should be leading the way? If we're going to say everybody has to be more civil, everybody has to not be disrespectful to counselors, who should be leading the way in that charge? Any guesses? Any hands? How about the very counselors and council members themselves? How about the people who are around that council table 
who already are among the most egregious offenders when it comes to disrespecting each other. Let me give you an example, and you're a bunch of examples, and you're going to know most of these. It was only back in May when then Councillor Donna Skelly made a comment, apparently made a comment, although she says she didn't make the comment, but anyway, apparently made a comment to something about the, when she was running for office about the LRT and our mayor sent this tweet out. She is a rookie councillor who does not speak on behalf of the city of Hamilton. Council decided to move forward and she should stop undermining its decision. Doesn't much care about Hamilton, just wants to be MPP. This is her third attempt. Ward 7 was just a novelty clearly disrespecting another one of the councillors. So would this fall into the category that the mayor then would be able to be removed from the meeting because he showed disrespect to a councillor? Certainly if you're going to tell the public that they have to respect the councillors, why would the other councillors be immune from this? Should count, should the may, would this mean then that the mayor would be ushered out of the council chambers because he was disrespectful? If you're going to pass this, absolutely he should be. Absolutely he should be. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Just before the break, I was pointing out that if you're going to put a rule like this into place, and I would not advise that, but if you were going to put a rule like this into place, at least I wouldn't advise it without very stringent definitions and guidelines on what this actually means. And we'll get to that in a second. If you're going to put this in place, surely this applies to all, correct? Surely this isn't just to the great unwashed in the public sitting up in the gallery in the cheap seats. Surely this would apply to everybody in council chambers. And if that's the case, the leading disrespecters at city council meetings over the last number of years have been the councillors. Let me give you another example. I gave you one from a Twitter, a tweet that the mayor sent out about Donna Skelly. Donna Skelly was at the heart of another one. Uh, well, she was one of the people in in the midst of another one. Uh, this was from recently when Donna Skelly was won her her uh, MPP seat or Queens Park seat, and the council was discussing whether how to get how to fill her seat. Councillor Matt Green put forward an idea that would allow for public for anyone from the public to apply, and then the council would have a interview process. Well, the other councillors didn't necessarily like this. He spun his chair around apparently and yelled, "That's gutless shame." Well, is that disrespectful to the other councillors? You could certainly make the case. I don't know what the definition of disrespectful is that they're going to put in play, but calling them gutless and saying they should feel shame for their decision, that could be exactly within the definition of what they're talking about. Does that mean that Councillor Matt Green should have been ushered out of the council chambers and forced to relinquish his spot for that meeting? Let me give you some more. I just pulled these up just before I came into the studio today. Didn't spend a lot of time. Not hard to find. Some time ago, back in uh, April... There was a meeting to to clarify spending rules on area rating infrastructure dollars. Remember, this goes back to that time when they were discussing whether when you want to get road repairs done and stuff, those dollars, the, the money that each councillor in the old city had that was up to them discretionary, whether how should those should be used? Uh, I'm quoting Andrew Dreschel now from The Spectator. Matthew Green threw a full-blown tantrum against Donna Skelly. He called her a hypocrite. She called him a bully. The hostility in his voice was as glaring as the distaste in hers. On and on and on. Is that disrespecting? Should they have been removed from the meeting? Again, from Andrew Dreschel. This comes from last November. Robert Pasuda. 
counselor, you may recall, had a life-threatening series of accidents and illnesses, uh, was unable to make council meetings for a number of times while he recovered. But Andrew writes about uh, groans of disgust, a rebuke from the mayor, and accusations of bullying. That's what happens when you take a cheap shot at a fellow councillor who's recovering from a serious illness. And that's what Sam Marula did during a tense council debate on, when, on transit Wednesday night. His personal attack against Robert Pasuda was not only mean-spirited, it seriously undermined Marula's arguments for a feasibility report on transit options, blah, 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 blah. Should Sam Marula be removed because he was disrespectful? One more. Donna Skelly, again. Slammed for electioneering, playing gotcha politics and chasing headlines um, because she actually asked for an audit of a $50 million poverty reduction plan beneath the personal score. Once again, from Andrew Dreschel, beneath the personal score and heaped on Skelly, there was an uncomfortable current of personal animosity. All right. So we're going to ask now and demand that the public be respectful to council. Should council not then be subject to the same rules? And if they are, how many councillors are going to be yanked out of those meetings and forced to leave? But here's the problem. There is nothing that I've seen yet when talking about this proposal that defines what disrespect is. So it's basically whatever you want disrespect to be. It's, it's at your leisure. You want disrespect to be this this day? Fine. You want it to be this this day? If it's someone you like, it's not really disrespectful. If it's someone you want to get out of there, it's disrespectful. Who is the determiner then of what is disrespectful? The whole thing is such a joke. It, and a lot of people are saying this is about censorship. Of course it's about censorship. If you don't like what is being said, you shut it down. And you shut it down under the umbrella of this particular rule that we are being disrespected. Unless this is defined so specifically, and then you have an independent person who is the disrespecter judge who's sitting there going, press the button, disrespect, out you go. You can't leave this to counsel to do this. Frank, how are you tonight? Hi, uh, Scott. Uh, you got me going on this. I, I want to ask you, do you know or recall whether uh, Mayor Eisenberger re- apologized to Donna? I don't recall. I don't remember hearing it, but I don't recall if that was the case or not. Because I don't think an apology is even enough. I think there should be some, um, you know, you own up to this thing in another way. Like, and, and what you say, what you're talking about the gallery, yeah, that's one thing. But once you started bringing up counsel themselves, you know, they set the example. And, and not only that, uh, I want to just revert back to Eisner. You know, in the real world, uh, uh, let's say in the, uh, let's say, human resources administered world, if I may say that, you do not take shots at people in public. You have to sit down. If you if you got something going on with somebody and you're airy, uh, uptight about them, just take them aside later and say, look, let's, let's you and I sit down here and talk about this thing because it's going to blow us apart. We're going to be do, do it between the both of us and not everybody else. Frank, I, I appreciate that. i got to run because I'm out of yeah, time, but I appreciate your call. Thank you. Look, I... I... The fact is, if you're going to bring something like this in, if you as a city are going to bring in some kind of rule, some sort of crazy, flawed, broad, unspecific rule that allows you to start kicking people out of meetings because of some airy-fairy, unclear definition of disrespect, you better be ready that you are going to be yanked out too as a counselor, that we're going to see counselors be trotted out of city council meetings. Because of their disrespect. I don't for a second believe that that's going to happen once. And so if that's not going to happen, then there is no way in the world the council should be passing something saying that the city, or that folks from the city, that the public is under different, a different set of rules. If you're blowing an air horn in city council, that's fine. That's already covered. If you simply have something negative to say about council and they don't want to hear it, 
better thicken your skin because that's why you got into this business. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.